I am poor in spirit, yet sometimes I don't show it. And this week, the Lord showed me, you're poor in spirit, Edward. You need to be poor in spirit. You need to come to me desperate and needy. And when we live like that, we are now living in reality. Because <laughs> it doesn't matter what we think about our condition. Our condition is we are desperate and poor and needy and broken, and we need to be healed. And so are you living in reality? Are you living humbly before the Lord? The poor in spirit realize that they cannot live a life worthy of Christ on their own. The poor in spirit understands the impact of sin on our relationship with God. Okay? This is spiritual poverty. We're poor in spirit. And we understand that our sinfulness has separated us from God and we are poor because we're not rich with the presence of God. We need to be right again with God. And so we're poor in spirit. And to be poor in spirit is to acknowledge that we need God's grace and God's mercy. Is that you? Do you realize how desperate you are for mercy and grace from your Maker, God the Father, and your Savior, God the Son, Jesus Christ? That's the condition that Jesus is calling for here. And I will say to you this morning, as I said to myself all last week, there is no place in my life for self-reliance. I don't need to be pursuing self-esteem. I don't need to be pursuing the self-made image that I want to project in my flesh to the world. I don't need to pursue independence. I need to pursue dependence. And I need a big Christ esteem. Christ needs to be exalted in my life. And that will only happen if I am poor in spirit. I want us to look. I want you to keep your hand there in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 18 real quick. And let's look at a picture of this poor in spirit, a, a, a contradiction to this calling that Jesus has as well as an affirmation to it. So Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. This, this passage is crystal clear on poor in spirit, I think. Jesus is offering a parable to his disciples. That's what verse 9 says. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Okay, problem already, right? Self-made, trust in themselves. That they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And here's what he says in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Not poor in spirit, is he? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This Pharisee is not poor in spirit. Is he? he is arrogant in spirit 
rich in spirit, if you will, but it's a false richness. And he proclaims how good he is, and never once does he acclaim God for the goodness that is in him. It's all me, me, me. I tithe. I fast. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not an extortioner. I am so thankful, God, that I am who I am, is basically what he says. That is not poor in spirit. Have you ever identified with that type of heart attitude? I have. I have. And I try to kill it, right? When it's disclosed to me by the Father through the Holy Spirit, I try to cut that out of my heart and I try to throw it away. But I have said in my lifetime, man, I'm glad I'm not like them. I've done some stuff, but I've never done that. That's exactly who this Pharisee is. And then we have this tax collector. And he is beating his breast. And he is grieving and he's saying, Father, be merciful to me, a sinner. I am poor in spirit. I have no hope but besides you. Have you ever been there? Oh, I pray that you have. I've prayed all week that we would walk out of here beating our breasts internally, saying, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. You're my only hope. Please resolve this condition in me through your Son, Jesus Christ. So when we read passages like this, we must always say, which one am I right now? Which one have I been? But who am I right now? Am I the tax collector or am I the Pharisee? Because I am called by my Christ to be poor in spirit. Am I poor in spirit? Scripture must be used like like a mirror as we audit our hearts and our lives. So there's a definition of Poor in spirit, straight out of the Bible. Now let's look at the promise. Blessed are are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The promise is the kingdom of heaven. And look at that. How much richer could you be if you didn't own the kingdom of heaven, if you don't possess the kingdom of heaven? So the poor in spirit, the, the destitute, can become the richest Right? Because we have the kingdom of heaven. It's ours. And I want you to notice some things about this promise. First of all, note the present tense of the verb is. All the other Beatitudes, except for the eighth one, it says this again, we'll get there. All the other Beatitudes are future-oriented. Those who mourn shall be comforted. The meek will inherit the earth. The hunger and thirst, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be. All those are future tense, but right here, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That means right now. How do we unpack that? We talked about that some last week when I explained to you the kingdom of heaven from the New Testament Scriptures. So we have this tension. We have this already, but not yet, when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. It's already here. The kingdom of heaven is here now. Grace is now. Jesus Christ reigns right now and reigns from now forevermore. We see in John, the Word was God and the Word became flesh, right? In Matthew, we see that Jesus is called Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us now. Not later. He's with us right now. Look in Matthew four seventeen. Right there, right before the Sermon on the Mount, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, 
For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not coming. It is at hand. It's upon you now, Jesus says. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven now. But it's also not yet. It's already here, but it's not yet fully manifest, right? We have not yet been glorified with Christ. We still live in the world, in fallen flesh, struggling to honor Christ with our words, our thoughts, and our actions. There's a day when the kingdom of heaven will be so fully manifested that that will not be a struggle for us anymore. That day is promised and it happens when Jesus comes again and gathers those that love Him and call Him Lord. And at that point, we will experience to the fullness for all of eternity the kingdom of heaven. But we're already in it, but it's not yet fully materialized. Let me give you a verse for that. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Just listen. You can turn if you want, make a note if you want, but here's what it says. In Him, that's referring to Christ, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, there's the already, the guarantee, yours is the kingdom of heaven, it's guaranteed right now, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it, acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You see the already, not yet? It's a guarantee. We've been given the Holy Spirit of Christians. The kingdom of heaven is ours now, and we will obtain full possession of it one day. Already, not yet. And so this promise is huge. The kingdom of heaven can be yours right now if you're poor in spirit. One who is poor in spirit says, Jesus, you are Lord, and I believe that God raised you from the dead, and you are the only solution to my sinfulness. Would you save me? Would you have mercy upon me for your glory? And when he does, you just became a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and it is yours right now, and it will be more fully manifested for all of eternity when Christ comes again, and you no longer contend with the flesh that you live in. It's good news. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the poor in spirit will be the richest for all of eternity. Right? We will be lacking nothing, wanting nothing. We will be rich forever. And I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel rich, material rich. We will be rich because we will be right with God our maker forever. That is rich. Spiritual wealth. And to enjoy the spiritual riches of the kingdom of heaven we must first realize that we are spiritually bankrupt on our own. Are you spiritually bankrupt? Yes, you are, but do you believe it? And can you fill that bankruptcy with Jesus Christ and inherit the kingdom of heaven now? God says this in Isaiah 57:15. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To, receive, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God has always said, I'm looking for the poor in spirit and I will dwell with him. That means theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we have God with us through the agency of the Holy Spirit in our heart. 
So immediately out of the gate, as we look at this first beatitude, we realize that we do not have the resources on our own to be self-made citizens of this kingdom of heaven. We don't have it. We're bankrupt. We're poor. We're desperate. And we need to come to God with such a heart. To be filled, we must first be empty. Let's look at the second one. Blessed are those who mourn. That's the condition. Blessed are those who mourn. Now remember, we said earlier, to be blessed means to be happy or joyful. But how do we reconcile this beatitude with that? How how can we be happy when we're mourning? Aren't those at odds with one another? Again, Jesus speaks to us in counter-cultural, counter-intuitive ways. In the ways of the world, absolutely these are contradictory. But in the ways of the kingdom of heaven, no. These are not contradictions of one another. The world does not like mourning. Right? The world hates mourning. Those who mourn ruin the parties. Don't mourn. Eat, drink, and be merry. We're happy here. The world hates mourning. But deep down, uh, the world uh, tries to do everything it can to displace mourning. There's pleasure dispensers everywhere in the world. Right? Think about it. Everywhere we turn, there's something there trying to please us to eradicate mourning. And one of the healthiest spiritual conditions that we can have is a heart that mourns. Now, what are we mourning over? So many times people see this and say, oh, let's say that verse at a funeral. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is not talking about that at all. Now, we may be mourning at a funeral for the right reasons. This is referring to a mourning over our sinfulness. We mourn because we understand who we are and it grieves us. This isn't that we're sad about something that's happened in life. This is a spiritual mourning that is God-oriented in its direction. And deep down, I'm going to tell you, and I think you can identify with this, every single person ever made is wanting to be relieved of mourning. Every one of us. Every person was made in the image of God. Every person was made to worship God. Every person worships, but some worship something or someone other than God their maker. And so when they do that, they are deep down inside mourning. They are not satisfied. And they ache. And they look to all kinds of things in this world to, to medicate that ache. So we look at alcohol as a medication to take away the ache. We look at bank accounts and retirement funds and health insurance plans to medicate our ache. We look to relationships to medicate our ache, but we don't look to our relationship with our Maker God and our Savior Jesus Christ to deal with that ache, do we? And so Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. This is an inward internal mourning and we are seeking to be approved by God and we're mourning because we know we don't deserve it because we are sinful and we've wronged the one who made us and the blessed 
mourn in their hearts. This isn't an outward. You know, we read where the tax collector beat his breast. He is mourning, right? He's poor in spirit, plus he's mourning over his sinfulness toward God. But we're really talking about a mourning that's happening within the heart. I love this. I was given this by one of our children this morning, right before the service started. She made this in Sunday school. And it said, man looks at the outside, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. That's exactly right. God is looking into our hearts to see if we are mourning. And if we're mourning over our sinfulness towards Him. And if He sees that, He says, you're blessed. And if we're mourning over our sin, then He says this, you will be comforted because you are mourning over that. Let's talk about how that comfort comes to us. First, here's what I want to do. I want to show you that we mourn over two things. I'm going to reverse the order of my notes here. The first thing that we mourn over, because I'm not going to spend much time on this, is that we see a fallen world and we see people with diseases and we see people that die and we see people that commit massive crimes and it makes us mourn, does it not? Do you not look at the world that we live in and mourn over the sinfulness that predominates the culture? It's sad. It it hurts. And we can mourn over that in a a God-honoring way. But don't we dare say like that Pharisee, boy, I'm glad I I don't drink like that. Boy, I'm glad I didn't walk into that school with a gun. I'm glad I'm not that way. No, we mourn when we see these things happen. And let's, be, let's understand that God says we will be blessed for that mourning, but let's not be arrogant towards the sins of other people. Let's mourn for their sin, and let's seek to share with them the good news so that they can join us in mourning over their sinfulness. So one way that people mourn is that we see a manifestation in all of creation and in our lives of sin in the world. Okay? But let's get real personal now. Let's talk about the second most important kind of mourning. And that is the mourning over our personal sin against God. We see this clearly in the life of Paul. I'm going to read this passage to you and then we're going to turn to another passage. Listen to what Paul says in this very famous passage of Scripture in Romans 7. Paul says this, and I think you can identify just like I did with Paul. Paul says, and I'm going to jump around from some verses to verses. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Okay, he's going to start mourning here in a minute. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. This is you, and this is me. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. You identify with this? 24. Wretched man that I am. You see the mourning? You see the poorness in spirit? Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn right here. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's rich. He's poor in spirit, but he's rich through Jesus Christ his Lord. He's mourning, but he's comforted because we hear comfort right here. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those are words of a comforted man born out of his mourning. So that's what it looks like in our personal life. And we see here Paul is poor in spirit and Paul is 
morning. Now I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And we've, we've done a whole sermon on this passage. This is a massive block of Scripture in the Christian faith. And I dare say this is very overlooked within the confines of the church. This is a big, gigantic verse that has massive implications for us every waking moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 8. We see here that Paul is writing to these Corinthians, and he's written them a hard letter. We like to call this the hard letter. We don't have a copy of this letter, but in verse 8, he says, For even if I made you grieve, and every time you see the word grieve, I want you to think of the word mourn. It's the same thing, right? Every, for even if I made you mourn with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that my letter made you mourn, though for only a while. Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved or mourned, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, a godly mourning, so that you suffered no loss through us. And then look at verse 10. For godly grief, godly mourning, produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Do you hear it? I, I hear a beatitude right there. Let me show you the beatitude that jumps out of this passage at me. It, it's like this. Blessed are those who have godly grief, for they shall have salvation without regret. You hear the beatitude? There's a, there's a woe in here too. Jesus pronounced some woes to the scribes and Pharisees. It, it's this. Woe to those who have worldly grief, for they shall die. Right? Verse 10. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so here we see here a, a poor in spirit, a mourning over sin in our lives. And when we see sin in our lives, we are grieved in a godly way, not worldly, but towards God we have sinned against God. And when we have that mourning, Scripture says we are brought to repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If we can live without regret, we're comforted, aren't we? Aren't we? So blessed are those who are grieved to repentance, for they shall be saved and they will live without regret. It also goes on to say, look at verse 11, For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. When we are proven innocent in the matter through repenting to Christ, we are comforted. We are comforted. So how are we comforted? We're comforted when we repent of sin. We repent of sin because we mourn over sin. We repent of sin because we are poor in spirit and we realize that we can't make right for our sinfulness. And in our poorness, we go to God and we say, God, I repent. God, forgive me. God, comfort me. And he says, I'll give you salvation, and you will live without regret, and you will be proven innocent in the matter for all of eternity, only through the blood of my Son, Jesus Christ. It's good news. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. D. 
Do you mourn over the sins in your life? Do you, do you feel that? I know you feel conviction. I feel conviction when I sin, but do I mourn when I have wronged someone or when I have wronged God? I pray that I will. And I pray that only will I find comfort in the forgiveness that is given to me through Jesus Christ. So here is the promise. I've basically spoken to it already. Comfort is born in repentance and it matures into salvation. And so we are comforted for all of eternity. We can be comforted now in the kingdom of heaven that's here now, living confident that we're forgiven for our sins and our eternity is covered by Jesus Christ. And we will live in comfort for all of eternity because we will not contend with the flesh that we live in right now for eternity. So deep down, every one of us, every human ever made, wants to be comforted. We are all striving for this. And only true comfort can be found in God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So let me conclude with this. Back to this. Following Jesus... <clears throat> is in the flesh, is not what we are to be about. Uh, we cannot follow Him because of His miracles alone. The great crowds were drawn to Jesus. And Jesus said, I don't want crowds, I want disciples. And so He started teaching. And we must follow what Jesus teaches. We must follow what He commands. Are you still in the Sermon on the Mount section? I want you to look at Matthew 7. Okay, this is the very last thing that Jesus teaches on the, on the back end of the sermon. He starts with the Sermon on the Mount, is, um, uh, the Beatitudes is foundational. Look at what he says at the end of his sermon. Remember I talked last week about bookends. Well, I like this. In verse 24 of 7, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock, Jesus Christ. These beatitudes are foundational. We must be poor in spirit. We must mourn over our sins so that we can be comforted and inherit the kingdom of heaven. Then in verse 26, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So, the Beatitudes, they're foundational to everything else that we'll do in life. If we do not come to God poor in spirit, God will not give us the kingdom of heaven. If we do not come to Him in mourning, He will not comfort us. Because the arrogant, He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. So the Beatitudes are about character. And character is an internal reality that may or may not be seen in our external actions. We need to be very careful that we don't walk around here making sure that everyone knows I'm poor in spirit. I don't want you to know that I'm mourning over my sin because now it's showtime and I'm wanting you to think, wow, Edward's holy. I wish I was that holy. No. This is an internal heart thing, a character thing. Man looks at the surface, the exterior. God looks at the heart. And so I want to show you the last thing. Turn over to chapter 6, because we'll get to this in the Sermon on the Mount as well. God knows the heart of man, and Jesus spends a lot of time on this issue in this sermon. Matthew 6, 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. 
For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So we are not to live poor in spirit. We are not to mourn. We're not to be meek for people to see us. We're not to show people how hungry and thirsty we are for righteousness. This is an internal, private thing before the Lord. Because we do not do this to get rewards by man on earth. Then look at 2.4. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. But when you give, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And he says the same thing in 6, 5 and 6 about prayer, and then in 16 and 18 about fasting. Don't fast that you may be seen by others. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So these Beatitudes are heart conditions. They're not external behaviors. If we turn the Beatitudes into behavior modification, we are defeating the very first one being poor in spirit. We're being prideful in wanting to show the world who we are. Thus, we must not be poor in spirit and we must not mourn for the goal of seeking the approval of man. We do this to seek the approval of God. We must live out these Beatitudes in secret in our hearts. And when we do, our Father who sees in secret will reward us. Let's pray.